What does the book of Lamentations have to say about life with God? This is the Bible Reset Podcast, brought to you by the Institute for Bible Reading. Welcome to the show. I'm Alex Goodwin, here with Paul Kennedy and Glenn Powell. Today we're going to open the show with a word of encouragement from the book of Lamentations. Cry aloud before the Lord, O walls of beautiful Jerusalem. Let your tears flow like a river day and night. Rise during the night and cry out. Pour out your hearts like water to the Lord. Lord, see my anguish. My heart is broken and my soul despairs. Ooh. Well, uh, if you listen to our last episode, we made the case that the church has neglected many of the sad and hard and really unsatisfying stories of suffering in the Bible. And in essence, we lamented the lack of lament within the life of God's people, especially the public and corporate lament that's been missing. It's true that we live in the victory of Jesus and the quote unquote already of what's been done, but we also live in the not yet of what hasn't been fulfilled yet. So today we're going to take a look at the book of Lamentations. And at the end of our last episode, uh, we did give out a little bit of homework to go ahead and read the entire book before we uh, start this episode. So if you haven't done that, you might want to pause the show, go ahead and go read and then come back. But either way, let's go ahead and jump in. Paul and Glenn, can you uh, give us a little bit of context on the book of Lamentations? Yes, thank you, Alex. And it does need a little bit of uh, context. And really, how could we explore the topic of lamentations without uh, turning to a book called Lamentations? Uh, But truth be known, uh, most of the other prophetic oracles are also books of lament. So there's no lack, as we kind of established Mm. last week. As I thought about the context, I was reminded of the opening lines of Charles Dickens uh, in The Tale of Two Cities. You know, it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. But for Israel, uh, this is an era without any redeeming qualities. There are no Mm. best of times going on right now. It is pure and simple, the uh, the worst of times. And so, you know, the author of this, um, and scholars, you know, disagree, but tradition has this as, as Jeremiah, and we know that he has been oftentimes called the weeping prophet. He references himself in so many of his writings about his own weeping. And um, it's a fitting title for him. Uh, his message that he preaches, his long all you know his entire life of repentance and coming judgment is violently you know rejected and i i was thinking about it this week you know our modern prophets speak uh, to uh, sold out events and then afterwards go and autograph books but uh-huh. uh, it was not that way with jeremiah and uh and his colleagues he was beaten he was cast into what the text calls dungeons, which, you know, is a step below a prisoner. Apparently, at one point, he's thrown into what's described as a, a, a well, and apparently some sort of like solitary confinement where there was just utter darkness that was there. Fascinatingly, he's prohibited from marrying. You know, how could you 
carry on and care for a wife in the calling that he'd been given. So he bears his sorrows alone. And, you know, we oftentimes think of him for like these hope filled um, words that appear occasionally. For example, in Jeremiah, I know the plans I have for you, you know, to give you a future and a hope. But if you read those within the context, these words were embedded within the sobering message to the people look, you better settle down in Babylon because none of you are coming home anytime mm. soon. And yeah. so, you know, throughout his life, it's, it's just described as, as bitter disappointment and kind of the clincher for all of it is that it doesn't end well for, uh, for, for Jeremiah. There's, there's nothing at the end that says, oh, at last, you know, I'm going to um, reap the comfort of having lived faithfully all of these years. And so um, after the, the people are exiled into Babylon, he's left in a prison in Jerusalem, but the newly appointed governor lets him out <laughs> and, you know, maybe he's going to have a life. And then the governor gets murdered and some rebels, some Jewish rebels, cart him off to Egypt. And tradition tells us that uh, he was stoned to death um, by his own people at the very end. So um, he's an apt author <laughs> to write a book like Lamentations. Yeah, I think that's right, Paul. And it it's, you know, someone had to give voice to their pain. And it's it's just worth briefly mentioning, you know, what the the this involved, this invasion, this dramatic attack by the, the powerful Babylonian army into the country, um, into Jerusalem, leveling the city, destroying the temple, carting off the best of the people to go into exile in Babylon, leaving the poor and inconsequential people as they saw it to be just kind of ragged survivors in the land. And just to say that at every level, this was a crisis for Israel, hmm. right? It's a crisis for the nation itself, obviously, um, but for their story with God, it was a crisis. Their whole story was built on being God's people in God's land, being a light to the nations, showing the world what it's like to live with God's Torah under his instruction. Um, God had made his home with them in the temple. So the whole thing, it's like somebody dropped a bomb into a book and just blew up their story. And then just think of the individual pain, families torn apart, people killed, um, a few survivors poor now. It's hard to even re recollect themselves as a group of people. So at multiple levels, this attack by Babylon was a crisis for Israel, for its people, and those few people who are left in what was Jerusalem now come together and they need a voice for their lament, their crisis, their pain before God, and that's what we have in the Book of Lamentations. So it's, it speaks of this horrifying and even incomprehensible tragedy that had happened to them. Like you said, Glenn, there's parts of Lamentations that talk about each of those things, right? Like it starts with the destruction of the city and the like physical gates falling down yes. and actual destruction. Later on, it talks, it's kind of back in first person, like the author's talking about his own uh, struggle and strife. And then in other places, it talks about the families and the children. And, you know, there, it just touches on on all of those points. You don't have to kind of fill in the blanks, I guess. Right, right. So the multiple levels of crisis, 
are each testified to specifically within the songs themselves. Yeah, I, I was reading, uh, uh, I read through Lamentations um, multiple times, not not to be a brown noser. Overachiever. Uh, yeah. Who trying to impress yeah. Paul? <laughs> <laughs> the hundreds of thousands of people that are listening to this, yes, to exactly. this podcast. Um, but I, uh, I, I read it once in the message, and I think that there was a phrase that Eugene Peterson said that part of the national disaster is that they were out sinning all of hmm. the neighbors to whom they were supposed to be um, a light. Hmm. And then, wow. you know, Glenn, I think, you know, to your point, these are large scale horrors that are almost unimaginable to us. And I, I do remember reading through this section in, um, you know, First, Second Samuel, First, Second Kings, where it talks about the siege of Jerusalem and the point where people are starving to death and they finally resorted to cannibalism. And they were mm -hmm. eating their own children. And I'd read that a number of times and I'd kind of skimmed over it. But there was a woman in our group who was a new mother. And when we began to talk about that, she just started to weep. And I don't know mm -hmm. that we'd ever kind of thought about that. At what point do you, how, how do you, how do you end the life of a child? And then how do you mm -hmm. prepare that child for a meal? And so when we get to the book of Lamentations, this is what people are lamenting over. These are not inconsequential. Yeah. So, of course, as we've talked about, this is based or based on or written after specific historical events, which you can actually read about at the end of Samuel Kings. So um, so the fact that it's poetry, I think, means that it's supposed to perform a certain function beyond just the facts, beyond just telling people what kind of, quote unquote, objectively happened. Right. So so what do you think? the role of poetry in Lamentations is. Yeah, we've talked about this often in the show that um, there are these very specific literary forms in the Bible, and they the authors choose them for a specific reason. And there are certain genres of writing, you know, that are good for conveying information and storytelling. And in this particular situation, the poetry seems to be the genre that best holds the intense pain of lament. And, you know, we didn't need a description here. In fact, again, um, I read a commentator that said, if you're reading Lamentations, it's not like suffering is explained, and there's not like a program for eliminating the suffering. These people have been reduced to crying out to God for relief. And mm. Poetry seems to be uh, the best container for that kind of, of deep lament. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it was Kevin Van Hooser who said, you know, each book of the Bible, just as an aside here, each book of the Bible is chosen specifically in an ancient literary form for the purpose of delivering its particular kind of content in the best way. Poetry is emotionally powerful. Prose reports things. Stories draw you in and surprise you in important ways. Letters instruct you. And so there's all these different literary forms in the Bible. And it's such an important part of reading and living and understanding the Bible well is to ask yourself, what part of the Bible am I in? And why is it in this kind of literary form? And so with Lamentations, we're getting songs, which we know inherently are always more emotional, right? That's why we sing these praise and worship songs in church. 
And uh, what we see in the Bible is that lament songs were also part of their praise and worship. And so that's what Lamentations is all about. It's worth pointing out here, it's a little bit technical, but I think to understand this will help us understand how Lamentations works. That is, the book itself structurally is five songs of lament. Now, each of those five songs is built in the same way. That is, it's built on the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So it's what they call an acrostic, where each next stanza of however many lines, two or three or even one, is built with, begins with uh, the letters of the Hebrew alphabet in order. That's what an acrostic is. So I think what's happening here is that there's all this pain and emotion, this crying out to God, protesting, um, showing repentance for all the wrongdoing that led to this disaster. All these different emotions are swirling around. And, and just like if you've ever seen somebody in distress, in real distress, there's a certain kind of chaos to it. Mm-hmm. And I think what Lamentations is doing is structuring the, the songs so that there is some boundary, some order, some way to communicate that isn't just chaotic and disheveled. And so the acrostic poems, I think, help deliver the content, at least so that that emotion can be harnessed in a way that it's still effective communication. That's what's Mm. happening here. But then something more interesting happens along the way. So the first song, the second song are just straight up, you know, these poetic acrostics, and they go through the 22 letters. They have three stands, you know, three lines in each stanza. And the pattern holds. You get to the third song, which is the center of the book, and there's also three lines per stanza. But now, every single one of those three lines starts with the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So the pattern is actually strengthened, and that's the center song of the whole book. But then you get to songs four and five, and it's almost like the emotion starts to overwhelm the structure. It's like the structure can't contain the strength and the fervor of the emotion, the pain, the lament anymore, and it starts to falter a bit. So in the fourth song, there's still 22 stanzas, and the first line is still with the successive letters in the Hebrew alphabet, but now there's only two lines per stanza instead of three. And then you get to the fifth song, and it's like the thing is just starting to unravel. Now, for the first time, it's not an acrostic. Like, the, the letters don't matter anymore. There are, there are 22 stanzas, but now they're each only a single line. So the mm-hmm. pattern has really completely fallen apart by the time you get to the end, as if to say, okay, um, we try to harness this and communicate it in an orderly structure so that we can, we can tell God about our pain and our lament but at the end, we, it just falls apart. And, and I think that's exactly how grief really is. You start mm-hmm. off trying to think about it rationally, orderly, give yourself some handles for dealing with it. But at some point, you just get overwhelmed and the emotion yeah. takes over. And so in this, in this structure, I think it's remarkable that the Book of Lamentations kind of mirrors this process of grief where the strength of emotion is kind of the last word. And that's how the book ends, is with this 
this song that doesn't fit the pattern anymore and is just barely hanging on to any order at all. That's real grief being expressed by by real people. And just one final thing I think to remember here, this was a communal culture. So this was this was a communal songbook for Israel. So these these stragglers who are left behind, who are the poor and the worse off people, they're coming together. Maybe maybe they're in the place where the temple used to stand, where they used to be able to come to worship. There's nothing there anymore, but they gather to sing this song and they do it out loud. So communal hmm. Lament, lamenting together out loud, and that's how this is expressed to God. Um, it's a powerful thing in the Bible, and I think way too much neglected. Thanks for that overview, Glenn. And if our listeners have a copy of Immerse Poets, which Lamentations is in in Poets, uh, you can find a written summary of the structure that Glenn just outlined in the book intro for Lamentations. But let's talk for a minute about the famous passage in, in Lamentations that everybody loves, which of course is the only tiny positive nugget in the whole book. And I'll just read it real quick. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Okay, there we go. Right? This is, this is the part of the book that is the inspiration for that much beloved hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And I think if people know anything, from the Book of Lamentations, they know these words about his mercies being new every morning, his faithfulness. You can count on God. This isn't the end of the story. He's going to, he's going to be there. He's going to do something good for us. But here's what I want to say about that. I think like so many things in the Bible, you know, passages like, for I know the plans I have for you, when we isolate these words and these kinds of passages from their setting, we weaken them. They mm -hmm. don't carry the same strength as when they are read in their full context. I think you have to read all full five songs of lament in order to fully appreciate what these words meant in ancient Israel and for us today. It's only when you read them and you've been, you've been entering into the pain of lament, and then in this remarkable placement, right? This is so strongly intentional and well thought out in the very center of the central song, you get, you get the only place in the whole book where there are words of hope, mm -hmm. of comfort, of the promise of God's future faithfulness. So it isn't incidental that they just happen to show up here. They were intentionally placed right in the middle. They're not the last word. As we said, the, the last word is a song that kind of falls apart structurally because the emotion is so strong. But here in the center of the book, we get these single words of hope. And I think it's, it goes like this. It's only when you fully know and enter into the grief of real loss that words of compassion and hope can carry all the grace that they are meant to. My wife Jane died of acute leukemia this summer after being sick for only two months. And mm -hmm. I have to say that now the hope of the resurrection means more than it ever did to me. 
As with lamentations, the real-life experience of deep grief and loss makes you hang on to the promise of great hope with everything you have. I believed Mm. in the resurrection before, but now I would say I am desperate for the resurrection because Mm -hmm. Jane needs her life back. And so these words of hope in the middle of lamentations, um, read the whole book, read the five songs, enter into the pain, and then the glory and strength of these words of hope will carry the full weight that they are meant to carry. And they are strengthened because there's a promise of God's future action that this is not the last word, that there's a better word coming. That's what reading the Bible in context, that's what reading whole books can do for us. Yeah, thank you, Glenn. And, you know, I think we had shared in the last podcast that the uh, the thing that catalyzed us dealing with this topic of lament was Glenn coming to us and telling us he was ready to talk about um, this process in, uh, in losing Jane. We've also, as we you know, discussed this, we've thought a lot about the current moment that we live in. And mm-hmm. you know, the three of us are not cultural commentators, but you'd have to have your head buried in a, in a pretty deep hole today to not realize that there's a lot of suffering and a lot of pain that's going on. You know, COVID has not been the bubonic plague, but it it has disrupted us. And there were other things that have been simmering in our political systems and in our uh, the the way that we talk to each other or don't talk to each other. The whole dynamic of social media that has really made this what I think the Brits call you know a bloody mess. And so yeah. we we want to kind of wrap this up a little bit to talk about what what does lament mean to uh, to us today as the church and um, and as individuals. And I think the first thing is that we want to reaffirm the reality that serious grief is an inescapable part of our human experience. And I don't remember the the uh, philosopher who said this, but he said, you know, essentially, if you're human, you spend the whole of your life living in two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of wellness and the kingdom of sickness. Hmm. And that sickness can be physical, it can be relational, it can be mental. But what the philosopher was saying is, you need to enter into life and think about your life that you are going to live in both of those kingdoms. And so none of this surprises us if we're believers, because the messages that we've been talking about, Lamentations, have have emphasized this to us again and again. And we do ourselves no favor when we uh, try to exclude God from our lives when we're dealing with these difficulties difficult things. God can take it. Mm. And so we, we need to be honest. Um, these people that we've been reading about bring their grief and even their protests directly to God. And it's very interesting that, you know, we talked about the book of Psalms. We think of that as being the song book of praise. I think the Hebrew word for it is Tehillim, which means a book of praises, but a full third of them are laments. And so I think we can come to the conclusion 
that coming honestly to God and pouring ourselves out to him and our grief to him is, in essence, a form of worship, and it is a form of praise. And the Bible can give us the words uh, to bring this praise of sorrow to God. Wow, that's mm-hmm. a profound thing, Paul. I just think there there really is a spiritual spirituality out there that says, you know, you have to be positive. Um, you have to be happy in order to praise and worship God. And if you don't feel good, if you're sad or you're angry, then you have to get over that if you want to actually bring praise and worship to God. And you just said that that's not true, that the Bible itself is an example to us that bringing your anger, your crisis, your pain, your sadness, bringing that to God is part of a book of praise, right? That's a remarkable thing that that I, I just think, again, to reiterate, I wish our churches would rediscover this and give hurting people in the congregations a chance to bring their grief and sorrow to God in worship. It would be a transformation of what we think worship is. And and the Bible leads us in this direction. So I think a second um, big point here in this whole series on lament is that lament is not right antithetical to hope. That that hope it doesn't obliterate hope, but I think sometimes we think that hope obliterates lament and sorrow and speaking our pain, and we have to get over that idea also, because the way lament works in the Bible is that it holds these things together. The Bible does not jump ahead to hope that is not yet realized. It realizes that this hope is something still to come, and because it's still a future thing fully to be realized, that it's completely appropriate to lament in a world like ours. Hope and pain must often coexist. Hope believes, but hope must also wait. Some days it's going to be like Psalm 88, right? Like the grief will surround us like a flood and darkness will remain our only friend. There are going to be days like that. And you're not Mm -hmm. unspiritual to have days like that, to have days like, like the fifth song in the book of Lamentations, where things, the structure of life just kind of falls apart. And all you are left to do is to utter your song of pain and sorrow, and leave it with God. So if the Bible acknowledges this reality, I think we have to also. It's the way life really is sometimes. And if we learn anything from this series, we learn that the Bible is true to real life, and we have to not be afraid to bring our real experiences, all of them, all across the entire scale, bring that to God, and the Bible gives us words to do just that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I love that, Glenn, and um, I think we've been saying that lament is actually vital to worship. Mm. Um, if at some point in your life um, you're not crying out to God at this type of intense level, then the question is, are you being honest to God? And mm-hmm. are you being honest to yourself? But I, I think even beyond that, um, I think that um, 
lament is also vital to our witness. And yeah. I think that we have to be people who are willing to let our lament show even to, you know, a watching world and a world that we've, you know, in the past we've been told we have to be a good witness. We have to let our light shine. But I think part of letting our light shine is being honest about um, the fact that we have not escaped as children of God. We have not escaped the difficulties and, um, and the devastation. And when we sugarcoat our lives, you know, when we sing songs like, uh, you know, the little happy clappy chorus that Glenn and I grew up with, that Alex huh. didn't grow up with. But, you know, <laughs> do you remember this one, Glenn? Uh, I found happiness all the time. Wonderful peace of mind since I found the Lord. Um, <laughs> I've, I've worked very hard to erase that from my mind. <laughs> um, you know. And, you know, I don't want to overstate the case. Maybe this yeah. person was having a great day and, you know, put the pen to paper and that's what came out. Um, but, but of all things, you know, those of us that are created in the image of God, I think one of the things we've been created to be then is a truth teller mm. and, and a truth, mm -hmm. a truth liver. And so, you know, the world does this. They, they actually, they're not yes, afraid. Right. To, they're to not show afraid their of articulating. Yeah. Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, the, I think of the line from Les Miserables, uh, what's the song? Uh, I had a dream. Uh, and I, this is just an incredibly poignant line. I think about this all the time. And it says, for there are things that cannot be, mm. and there are storms we cannot weather. Um, that's a that's a very desperate line, and it I think it actually would make a good prayer for those of us that are believers to come to God and say mm -hmm. to Him, "There are things that right now that I cannot weather, and um, and there are things that just cannot be." And so mm -hmm. I I think that we need to be um, honest about this. We don't need to be shiny, happy, happy Christians all the time. And by allowing our, our slips to show occasionally, <laughs> by talking to our friends and uh, even our friends that are, are maybe on the borderlands of belief about what's really happening in our lives, and maybe even confess sometimes it seems like God doesn't show up for me when I need him to, mm -hmm. um, that this is actually part of a witness. And uh, it might actually, in some sort of countercultural way, um, cause our lights to shine more brightly. Yeah, that is very good, Paul. And I, I just, it's just occurred to me, um, you know, we've been talking about books in the First Testament, but if there's a book of lament in the New Testament, a letter of lament, I think it would have to be Second Corinthians. And sometimes people might think, well, all this expressiveness, this emotional expressiveness that you're advocating for in lament, right? It's too showy. It's too dramatic. Like, we don't, we don't need that. And I think, wow, just just read what Paul wrote in Second Corinthians, where he he almost loses it in the letter, and he says, "We endured things that they were beyond our ability to endure, right? Not that we we just barely endured them with God's help. It was beyond me what I endured, and and I was, I mean, he, here's a man in crisis as he describes it, and he articulates it to the whole church. So what you said, Paul, is just true. I think. Um, Christians just don't need to be afraid of being truth tellers, and and grief is being truthful to the kind of world we all live in. So thank you for that. 
Yeah. Thank you both. That was a treat for me to sit here and listen to. So appreciate that. Uh, this, this wraps up our two-part series on lament, which as Paul just mentioned, can be a subject that Christians really don't like to dive into or walk into. But as Glenn shared just a little bit earlier and, and also on our last episode, uh, he's walking through this season of grief and lament. And certainly over the last couple of years, our public life has been filled with, uh, thousands upon thousands of deaths through the COVID-19 pandemic, riots, scandals all over the place. Um, you know, the news is a hard thing to look at these days, I think. Mm. And there's a lot to, to, to lament. And we think that it's a practice that the church can and should recover. So uh, definitely something to think about, I would say. As always, this episode is brought to you by our Changemakers community of donors who have pledged monthly gifts of any amount to help us change the way the world reads the Bible. To learn more and to become a changemaker, head over to instituteforbiblereading.org slash changemakers. That's going to do it for this episode. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next one.